Edgar Carrot is the author of the memoir The Seven Good Years and several story collections such as The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God. Carrot has received many awards, including the Book Publishers Association's Platinum Prize, the Charles Bronfman Prize, and others. In 2007, Carrot and his wife won the Cannes Film Festival's Camera d'Or Award for their movie Jellyfish. Carrot's books have been published in 45 countries. Now, Let's welcome Edgar Carrot to the creative process. I really like working as a storyteller. I always like to try and do something in an environment or in a context that is different and that will be challenging, you know. It's like my wife, we did a year and a half ago project with a dance group. Oh, wow. I haven't seen it. And for me, the challenge there was telling a story with no dialogue. You know? It was interesting, yeah. And now trying to, to set a story in a different country, in a different language. I never feel too comfortable anywhere. Yes. It's not because I think that, let's say, to create something with demands energy. Mm-hmm. And this energy comes to me always. When I really like, uh, like, you know, many times I can do stuff that need to read the same. Mm-hmm. Sure. But no, me, but it's very different. Yeah, yeah, but it's always like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's hyper-realistic or fantastic mm-hmm. or surrealistic or, mm-hmm. or comical. Or, but I, I think that there is something in the element of kind of searching, you know, that when you create, I think you always search for something. And I think that sometimes some kind of difficult constraints mm-hmm. are actually an advantage, you know, because because you're fo- focused at something, you try to understand something. And I, I think that the, one of my biggest problems is that when I sit down to write or when yeah. I sit down to do something, I have there are too many things I want to oh, do. But I think that's what people love about you. And I mean, from fellow writers who have mentioned you to me, you have so many ideas. I like that because, you know, I mean, I guess there's a trend now for people publishing really long books. And people are buying them too. That's amazing. But, I mean, I think honestly, people are reading all those books. So it's great when you pick up an Edgar Carrot book. In actual fact, you could have made that 600, 700, 800 pages with all the different characters and settings. But you respect your reader and their time. And I think they appreciate that. That's wow. Like, I read most of your books. And what I found was, wow, I can't believe this little two, three-page story. I remembered it. And that's amazing. Because even with writers I love, I can't remember two pages from one of their even like one section and so that's really great all the ideas is uh, it's I think that you know I don't think like I don't think I, I can compare but one thing for sure uh, the purpose is different sure. I think that uh, the better when you write you try to create or document a word yes and when you write racial fiction you try and document emotion Mm-hmm. If you try to draw a picture of, let's say, a, then a lake and the trees next to it, then this is right, like writing a novel. But say, you know, I throw stone and I don't want to draw the lake, I just want to draw the ripples in the water. You that's know? a good description. Basically, I think that there is, there is something that I try to look for in a short fiction that it won't be encumbered by the body. You know, sure. it won't be physical, it will be just some kind of a... It's like if I, if I move my hand, mm-hmm. then it's like if you don't draw my body, but you just draw... Mm-hmm. Sure. The, yeah, the, I, I, I think my impression from the stories and why they are so memorable is that they have 
it like a dream or you know the dream is just the essential that's why it's crazy if you remember the whole thing or it will be reality and you might not remember but you get that you say the sensation the the craziness whatever what we really remember it's funny because i saw a short video yesterday and it blew my mind it's this guy who's a stuntman and he uh, jumped out of an airplane without a parachute and then he's aiming, he's supposed to land in a house that has a hole cut in the roof. Just this tiny hole, wow. and he lands, and then there's a trampoline. In the wow, that's dangerous. <laughs> he, he survived, it happened. I thought, this is, this is like Edgar Carey's stories. It's crazy, it's funny, and then there's this little space, but you pull it off. <laughs> but I think it's nice, and we just don't even know where it's going. I mean, there's so many chances to fall somewhere else, but uh, it's nice. I liked in your memoir, uh, in the 700 years, you talk about when you watch your first story, and I'm just thinking about the end of it. I don't know if you want to share that, when you shared it with your brother. I thought that was great. You tell me the story again, if you don't mind. When I grew up, I actually, I kind of majored in physics and mathematics, mm. and I was a reader, but I was pretty sure that I'm going to be working in exact sciences. Mm -hmm. Not because I liked it so much, but because I was good at it. And uh, during my compulsory army service, I really got into a lot of trouble, and they kind of kicked me out of the because they get into kind of subordination issues. Yes. But I wouldn't be like this kind of rebel. Mm -hmm. I would do things that uh, would be against the army laws without even noticing, you know. I would think for myself or I would give ideas to my commander which were better than what he thought about, which is something oh, that yes. you don't do in the army mm -hmm. or stuff like that. So I kept finding this, moved me to this job in which I worked shifts because I, I wasn't very much interaction with other people during those shifts and it was kind of a brain tennis. So it wasn't really, it would be like kind of meditating. So I started talking to myself, even though suddenly kind of found myself, kind of telling myself stories. And I, I, it was the first time I was, I felt that I was telling. So I sat down and I wrote, wrote it. When the shift was over, like I had to wait for a very long time for, I would meet another human being and you know, that person was. So I went. I took a bus to my older brother's house and then I woke him up because it was better that I come down, you know, and I read and I came down with his dog and the dog was very happy because my brother would usually wake up late and he wanted like, you know, a crap or something. The dog tried to pull back but my brother didn't even notice it so the dog very quickly kind of fell on its side and like I had this kind of thing that, you know, that I really felt uncomfortable but my brother was still very much into reading and he walked very fast and I didn't know what to do and, and before I figured out what I could do, my brother finished reading in that time and the dog kind of stood again and did what he wanted to do in the first place and my brother was really amazed you know, and I, I felt it was some, a very powerful experience because my brother is very genuine, very powerful, but, but at the same time he's so, this kind of separate, separation between the text that you write mm -hmm. and what people, the input it has in people's minds, it is very, very strong, so, so it actually kind of uh, magnifies the effect of, of stories, because you know, if you would say, oh, you know, I, I put it and I put it in my, it would just make it an object, mm -hmm. but then in a sense it would be, 
take care of your twister. Yeah, and of course, like my brother asked me if I had, an, uh, had another copy, but he said, you, this kind of confidence mm. that he doesn't have to look at the page again. No, it's true. It's like a song or something that, yeah, can repeat in you. And that's, it's true. I do see that in your fiction, you have, it has this repeating quality. Yeah, a resonance. And I think it's very important to have because it's between, you know, it's, it's printed words on the page, but it has an oral quality. I think it's very important for the, the things we remember over time, you know? Like, yeah. we don't remember all of Ulysses, but, you know, we remember some passages stays with us. So I, I see myself very much as a storyteller, mm-hmm. and I think that the influence I had was uh, from Yiddish and the Obershell singer and oh, and uh, and Yiddish is, is a very oral language mm-hmm. in that sense that uh, it was basically like Hebrew was the written language mm-hmm. but because it was the holy language mm-hmm. so, <coughs> let's say when I, I write a story but you know but if I put the room and read yes. the story to you uh-huh. instead of you reading it yeah. from a book I would prefer to do that you know it's just that this uh, feeling that there is something in the story that is kind of an intimate connection. I think that the text has some kind of objectivity, but I but I think that most of my stories mostly project the voice. We use text to project yes. the voice. When you talk about repetition, you know, it's not something that I do consciously, mm-hmm. but I think that the repetition appears a lot in my writing. But, but the idea of repetition, I think in my mind, is that we can revisit the same place, mm-hmm. but the repetition is never complete, in that sense that it seems like a circle, but it's actually a spiral. So when you look from up, like it seems like in the same point, but when you look at it in details, mm-hmm. many times in my stories there are people who, for example, something happens to them, mm-hmm. they're telling what happened, but yeah. when you read it, you see that the way that they tell it, it's not exactly the way it happened. Sure. So by, by some kind of nuance, yes. Then, uh, <coughs> for example, I don't know, I have a story called uh, Break. Okay. It's like it's from a graphic novel. It's something. Oh, okay. Here in France it was called that. So there is a guy, a little kid, and he's, uh, uh, he wants to be a boxer, mm-hmm. and he goes to a place, and then the coach says to him, if, if I want you to fight with somebody, mm-hmm. and then he says the kid that came into the ring was very dark, uh-huh. and uh, short, and looked like an Arab. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the kid reads him up, and then mm-hmm. later on he says, and I remember the time when I went to the club and the Arab kid beat me up. Oh, yes. But it, when it happens, he speculates that he's an Arab, but when he repeats it, he's already sure that he's an Arab. Sure, yeah. so, so I think that many times there is something about life that we never stagnate. We sure. all, we're always somewhere else. So I think that uh, many of my stories are either people retelling something, but they actually make a change in it, or people going through the same thing, but actually having a different experience, or just every time he kind of tells the same story, but he doesn't tell the same story because he learns something about the world, or the circumstances are different. So I was never able to develop in myself some sense of routine. You know, uh-huh. like one of the things that is very difficult. <laughs> okay. It's really, it's not. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's like when I wake up, I, I kind of look at the list and I know what I'm supposed to do. But if you ask me if it's a Wednesday or a Thursday, I wouldn't necessarily know. Uh-huh. Because there is something about even if I do the same thing, you know, even if I get up. Well, there is something, I guess, in the way that we see it, and anxiety, it always feel like something that is happening for the first time. 
Okay, well, that's a great quality to have. It's a yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's great quality. It's also always an advantage. For example, you know, when you drive, you, you have to focus on your action. You know, yes. you can't sleep or read. Or, so, whenever I do that, I cannot get into a routine to say I'm driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, the feeling is always that I was a, that I'm a Neanderthal kidnapped in the future, put in a crazy vehicle mm-hmm. is about. To hit the wall and explode, you know. But there are little explosions in the engine every time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I think the only way that you can drive mm-hmm. is to have some kind of a nonchalant thing about it. To so say, you know, I drove before, I drive again. Yeah. You know. But here it's. Uh, well, it's some countries you shouldn't drive. Paris is a bit crazy driving, but uh, I don't. I don't know what it's like in Israel. Israel is much worse. So, so one of my stories was a, a summer camp in the world. Nobody said it's going to be fun, okay. and they make your life so horrible in it that after it life, they don't give you food, and then after it's whatever. So it's some kind of a therapy. So sometimes, you know, I think it could be a metaphor for living in Israel. It's really like I'm saying, I'm saying it as university, but sometimes it's really, it's like, you know, it's like uh, when my son was a song on the iPad, you know, so I lay on bed with him and he said, before you put a song, uh, can you Google something for me? I said, sure. I said, Google a place where people don't kill each other. Yes. And I said to him, uh, I don't have to Google it because I already tell you there isn't such a place and, and he said grandmother said New Zealand <laughs> but but it's amazing that like in such a young age you already notice the anxiety and aggression xenophobia you know it's like and I said to him why and he said well you know they taught us they told me that the Anwar Sadat was the president of Egypt who made this got assassinated and he said, I know how to make a deduction. <laughs> and I realized that all the people who openly say they want peace, they get killed. So he said, I, I don't want you to say that in an interview. He said, when me and mother in the room, we can tell each other. But don't tell it to strangers. Because he said, I want peace. But more than that, I don't want to be an orphan. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, what kind of reality is he being raised in? That he would never tell me, let's say, don't say racist remark. Yes. Uh, like he would be morally against it, but he wouldn't find it dangerous, you know, yes. to say to some, somebody like you, know, you, I don't know, you dirty Arab or something, it would be yeah. something that is not nice, like yes. you know, we're getting up from the table before everybody finished eating, or you know, or eating with your hands, but but it's not dangerous. But to say, I wish to have a better future, is something that he feels uh, puts you in mortal danger, and I thought that it's really uh, very sad, you know. Uh, raise a child in such a reality and basically I do whatever I can and counter that because there's two things that reminds me of when you said that but one thing going back you said it's a not the ideal place but it's a good place to create and I think that that is a it seems like an interesting observation because it's composed of so many people who have really created themselves, recreated themselves, start over again, displaced persons. And that is like uh, a story. You're beginning whole new book. So you are living in a country full of uh, creative people. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. A, so, so I don't know how it is in Guzman, but the stories mm -hmm. are always about conflict and difficulty. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, there is something about Israel. Israel is an immigrant country, mm -hmm. uh, but unlike, let's say, the U.S., mm -hmm. people immigrated in the following the American dream. Yeah. In Israel, most of the Jews living there were chased. Sure. So they came after the Holocaust. They came after persecution in Arab countries. Yeah. Now yes. it's almost like a, a last resort kind of feeling. That, you know, side by side to the extreme right wing machine. Mm -hmm. Most of the people, you know, even if they try to subscribe to that thing, they have some kind of a notion, a past. And, and in that sense, <coughs> you have a country full of uh, fugitives that come from different backgrounds. Which yeah. is, I said once in an interview, that the sensibility of Israel mm -hmm. is less of a country and more of a reality show. <laughs> if he had abusive parents or if he lost his leg in an accident or something. And in Israel, you know, it's like when you go through immigration, mm -hmm. you know, with passport control, it's like if you don't tell them a good story, they won't let you in. You know, yeah. you can't just say, oh, I want to come. You know, you have to mm -hmm, say yeah. something, you know, yeah. and and it's a country of, of almost of people who, who were, in a sense, uprooted. Mm -hmm. sure. So I think that there is something about this energy mm -hmm. that creates a genuine unrest mm -hmm. and many negative things. Because I think that on the positive side, it people who are very innovative. They don't take the reality around them for granted. You know, you, you know somebody immigrated in between countries. There are many things that you know you could say. Why do the French people do this? They could do this, you know. Yes. But the French person would never ask that because he, he was raised, you know, he's almost blind to this option of seeing from the exterior, you know. And and I think that this plus a religious secular tension, the a European Jews and the a tension with the Jews coming from Arab countries, plus the Palestinians, yeah. the, it's a series of never-ending explosion, you know. I remember when I was uh, six year, years old, there was the 73 war, All right, yeah. and the 73 war, mm -hmm. so basically they would bring out cars, and my father would wear a uniform, mm -hmm. go, you know, give, give him a gun, and he goes to fight, you know, on the same day. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was six years old, and my, my father took this uh, note, mm -hmm. and they hung from downstairs, that he has to go, yeah. and he shout, just a moment, just a moment, and he says to my mother, so listen, if I get killed, sell this apartment, don't sell it for less than 200,000 euros, okay? I owe this guy 5,000 euros, and, and you know, Jacob, from, I owe him 3,000 euros, and this guy owe 2,000 euros, so you have in the end 80,000 euros, and then my mother said, and where would I live? And my father said, give her a kiss, and he said, you are a smart woman. <laughs> you think of something, and he gets on the jeep and drives. And next time I see him, he's a man, he's a man away. So as a six-year-old, I hear him planning what's going to happen if he die tomorrow. You know, yes. so you have a, to be ready, yeah. So I'm saying I I don't even remember it as a post-traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't have a post-traumatic experience there. Mm -hmm. I just remember it the, the way I grew up. So I think that uh, I I was really blind mm -hmm. to the reality I grew up in. Yeah. Until I became a father. Mm -hmm. But when you're a father and you're some kind of an interface and you have to explain to your son all those things, because my father never kind of explained it to me. So, like, you know, this is reality. Like, you know, if somebody grew up in London and say, Daddy, why does it rain? Yeah. What can I do, you know? Yeah. 
if, let's say, your prime minister in his opinion are different than yours, and if it's difficult for you at some time to say what you want without getting into trouble, then why do we stay here? You know? <laughs> it's logical. <laughs> and, and it's a question, and it's a question I never ask myself. It's very funny, you know, that my, my son is very much a, yes, a sort of a corrupt politician, you know? <laughs> so, so it's, it's really funny because uh, we have a, in Israel an economic series yes. uh, in TV, and he asked me to see an episode, and I said to him, no, I don't think he's going to get it. But he said, well, I get some, you know, and he saw it, and basically shows how the government gives a lot of money to the settlement to encourage people to move there. Mm, yeah. uh, and in the end of the show, he said, uh, yeah. the, Father, why don't we move to the occupied territories? We will pay much less taxes. <laughs> and, uh, and then you and then you find yourself that you have to explain to him what the occupied territories are and why it's, it would be more to give. But so so there is something about this uh, existence that you know that makes you answer questions that you never even bother to ask yourself. Yeah, but it's in, you have to do really examine your life. Like, when it's like, what color rider would you be if you grew up in Switzerland? Well, for my feeling is there are good chance that I wouldn't be a writer because, yeah. because you know, I, mean, I started writing when I was in the army, shut himself, you know, in my arms, you know, next to me, and uh, and I think that writing was a way to be with that. So I can imagine that if I would be in Switzerland, I maybe like you know I wouldn't go to the army, you know, like skis. <laughs> I wouldn't ski like yeah. I think it's the same logic to think I have these cars like, like I wouldn't mind the wrestling with boots this is something that I can understand like, like I said but, they, but why people want to propel themselves with great speed from mountain tops so you can roll down the ski slope so they think they're so happy they get in the ball it goes down they can't stop it it goes down it goes down it goes off <laughs> they, they died my son asked to go on a sled, so we went on a sled, and basically they don't have a fence. So if you don't take the turn right, you fly off, you know, the mountain. And one stage, because I was about to go there, so I had to tip this thing over, and my son nose started bleeding. And I got scared, and he said, it's okay, it's okay, Father, just, you know, let's continue doing it. And when I get it, okay, and I said, I think that people need to have some kind of mortal danger, and uh, when it doesn't come naturally, you actually manufacture it. And I said to them, how many of you had one, one uh, of your family member or yourself badly hurt from a skiing accident? And probably all of them raised their hand, you know? So I say, like, you know, I, I played soccer, I got hurt playing soccer, I do other sports, but very rarely you get hurt, and when you get hurt, it's not that bad, but with skiing, you know, it's basically, like I said, there must be some kind of upside to it, because, like, I don't know anybody who skied for 10 or 20 years and didn't break an arm or leg or got yeah. a concussion. But you're right, they don't have mandatory military service, so they need... Uh Something. Yeah, an animal who doesn't have natural predators, so it's yeah. kind of some of the creatures commit suicide, you know, I'd say, I, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, how can you die in Switzerland, like, you go, you know. I, yes, I don't, I don't know either, but um, it's interesting now, because reading your stories and your memoir, I'm trying to imagine what kind of kid you were, were you a troublemaker? 
I may have made some trouble, but uh, it's like, I think that the biggest difference is, uh, I think it's uh, how confident he is. All right. I think that, you know, I think that uh, from very early on in my life, mm-hmm. knowing that my parents, I think the question that I kept asking myself was, if I would be a child in the world, because would I survive? Oh, right, yeah. And of course, like, you know, these are the kind of questions, you know, the reality is so big and so random that you, yeah. you don't know. But as a child, I always had this feeling that I would have never survived, you know? That uh, I didn't have what my parents had, this kind of uh, determination and this kind of unbelievable thirst for life, you know? I remember, like, you know, my mother, when I grew up, we were, like, at a lower and middle class. And my mother basically would uh, work a... Uh, she had a fabric store, and she would work so very hard, so at 7 p.m., mm-hmm. and when she would come, like, you know, she would wash the floor, and she would do everything in the house, and then I remember the intersection, she would finish everything, and she would sit on the balcony and smoke a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And she, when she, you would look at her doing it, you would feel such an unbelievable joy. Mm-hmm. Like, she said, whoa, like, she said, wow. Life is so amazing, you know, it's a, when my father uh, was dying from cancer, in the last week of his hospital room, it's a very depressing hospital, it had a very small window, and I remember that there was a time in each day, it would be around 3 p.m., that the sun would be in the window and be on his face, and every day when it would happen, it would say, oh, that's so good, you know, that's so good. And, and I felt, always felt with this kind of first for life and disability to enjoy life was something that I didn't have in the same uh, volume that they had. And it always kind of made me feel that uh, there is something about my life experience that is not as powerful and as adequate, you know. In that sense, you know, I, I, I always felt kind of shame for having those things that my parents didn't have. And with my son, he has nothing of that, you know, mm-hmm. he's really, he, he's super confident of himself, mm-hmm. so it's like a, he's a cross between me and Attila the Han, you know, it's <laughs> like, a, he's really like, he got just, he just got elected the representative of the student committee or something, All right. which is something like, you know, it's only like, somebody like him would want to have to hold this bureaucratic position, you know? He's preparing to be a corrupt politician. <laughs> so, so I said to him, why did they vote for you, uh-huh. you know? And he said that every kid gave a speech, mm-hmm. and uh, they all prepared, like, those PowerPoints and stuff, you know? And he said, I got on stage and I said to them, I won't lie to you, I'm not a perfect child. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm very lazy. Sometimes I'm very angry and obnoxious, but nobody in this room can say that I'm not stubborn or that I give up easily. And this is exactly what you need. Let the nice children stay home. (laughs) Your representative should go out there and fight for you, and nobody would fight uh, more fiercely than me. That's a good speech. <laughs> this yes. guy is a nice guy, but you need a killer, you know. Yes. So I'm saying so. It's it's amazing that he's so different. But for example, you know, there is this thing about him when he says something that is not true. This thing, it's really we don't even have it. It's like it's not a catchy in a line. 
<laughs> meaning that he kind of knows that when he lies to other people, they believe it, and when he lies to me, I understand that it's not true, but I don't mind. He's rehearsing his lies with you. <laughs> and it's funny because also, I feel that you know that, uh, that uh, there is something about uh, sometimes uh, not telling the truth. It's basically a way to access, and sometimes uh, it's like uh, if truth is like a, a wave. Mm -hmm. The effect can be like a wave breaker. And that's something I learned from my child. When a kid tells you something, he tries to think of it to tap to the essence of his experience. If a child says to you, five kids beat me up after school, but it was very scary, it doesn't mean that five kids beat him up. It could be one very skinny kid. But it's a better way. It's like not objective. But it's an attempt to say to you how it felt. And this is something that I really subscribe to, and I think that it's very, very close to the way that I write. You know, when I, when I work on the TV series, then uh, what I try to do in the TV series is really project a reality that is very connected to subjective consciousness. So it's not a point of view like that I put a camera where the guy's eyes is, but the entire series goes with the same character. And I don't want to show you how reality objectively is, I want to show you how you experience it. So if you see it, it won't feel surrealistic in any way. Uh, because, like, no, it's not as if people would levitate or do anything like that. But at the same time, there would be something, let's say, he's responsible for everything in this world. Then every time he take an action, it will have extreme consequences. You know, so it's, it's like, let's say, if you write notes with a pen, and I talk to you, and then, I don't know, you check an SMS, and you say, then you go home, and later I call you, and uh, your boyfriend will say to me, she killed herself. Why? Because somebody took her favorite pen and she felt her life meant nothing without this pen. Then this kind of thing really subscribes to this guy's feeling of a over-responsibility for life. It's like this would be what's in his mind or the way that he experiences action, but when we will be with him, this would be our word. Which is very much like the kid telling you five kids beat me up when it's only one, you know, or I was chased by a wolf when it's actually a creature dog, you know, it's a... It's, it felt like a wolf was yeah. running after me, you know, so... No, that's true, it's, it's how you feel. Hello there. My name is Cassidy Edwards, and I am an associate podcast producer for the Creative Process Podcast. I am a rising senior at American University, pursuing a double major in entertainment business and film and media arts. While I have been using my time in college to try out multiple different aspects of film production, I am most drawn to screenwriting and producing as a career pathway. Edgar Carrot has written several stories for both print and visual media, which is something that I see myself doing in the future, as I am a fan of both written stories and visual stories. One of the things that I admire most about Carrot is the fact that he is someone who is not afraid to step out of his comfort zone and create something that pushes boundaries. He has been very critical of the Israeli government and is passionate about activism, even when it is risky for him to speak out. I myself am very passionate and outspoken about several social issues that pertain to gender equality and disability rights. Going to a politically active college has allowed me to become more outspoken about the issues that I care about. 
And yes, while American University is known for their political science program, every program has an outlet for political activism, no matter what you study or what you're passionate about. Another thing that I love about Edgar Carrot is the fact that he draws inspiration from several sources in his life. As he addresses later in this interview, he incorporates several personal experiences into his stories that vary from his relationship with his family to even dreams that he has. I believe that fictional writing is a very personal process. Whenever I write something, whether it be a short story or a short script, I find that aspects of my personality or my life always creep into the characters or the plot, even if it's not what I intend or set out to do. Creative writing is an excellent way to express yourself and share your experiences with the world, and it allows readers to empathize with you, creating a human connection. The arts and humanities are often overlooked in academia and in our society, but storytelling is very important as it brings people together and it allows us to connect with others based on shared experiences and commonalities. And now, without further ado, let us go back to our interview with Edgar Carrot. Going back to the issue of like lies and exaggerations, you said that some of the stories that your father used to tell you about when he had to travel and maybe in Europe, like he would describe to you maybe, I, you know, he uh, knew some people they were in a brothel or they were drunk. Yeah. Uh, can you remind me how it was? His story, his sto- short, uh, his bedtime stories to you. Yeah, it was, yeah. I think there was nothing in them about the. Again, you know, the objective action, yes. it was a lot about empathizing mm-hmm. with people. It was like storytelling was an exercise in empathy. Sure. And I think that this is really the essence of the art, in, art for me. I think every artist finds something else, you know, in art. But for me, I think that this uh, ability to empathize is really, it's this idea, for example, I don't know, when you read Lolita, it's a new goal through some kind of an experience. But if you ask me objectively about the protagonist, he's a pedophile. Yes, of course. You know, I, I wouldn't want him to babysit my children, you yes. know. I, I arguably, maybe, I would want this person to be in jail. And it's okay, because uh, since it's fiction, there are no victims in the real world, and it kind of helps me to take a step in the direction this time across the taboo, and to recognize the, the humanity in this existence, you know, between uh, empathizing and uh, justifying. I can empathize with many things which I cannot justify, you know, I can... It's a difference, I think, the human instinct is to alienate from everything that threatens us. Yes. So it's like, you know, if somebody is my enemy, I don't want to feel what it's like to be in. I try to get a parking spot, and this other guy wants to find a parking spot. I don't say to myself, he's ready to take his kid from school, because it works against my survival. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, motherfucker, I was here first, you know? <laughs> so, 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 That's why you don't drive. <laughs> no, but it's not only driving, it's everything in life. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's like I'm saying, if you would uh, empathize with every homeless person in the street, oh. then you would give all your money to each of them, mm-hmm. you know? But you don't empathize, you realize there is a function, you give them a coin, you keep on going. So, so I'm saying, we, all the time in life, we block ourselves from empathy because mm-hmm. it's like evolutionary, if we would empathize all the time, we would not be able to survive, mm-hmm. you know? But I think that uh, in art, this is a place where we can release it 
and because it's not true yes. and it does not have really consequences, we can yeah. actually try and feel what it is. No, it's interesting. As you say, it's, that's going when you're talking about your comfort zone, you're inhabiting other people. It's, it's important. And I think it is essential for each of us to do that. If, if we're not in touch with some kind of art, and it can be even oral storytelling, because some people don't read, you know, or it's not part of their life in a big way, but I think we need it. I think especially as religion means less to a lot of people, it's, it's, it's a very important, this connection with other, even, even those who are not really good. But I liked talking about empathy and lies. I remember you talk about the pastrami sandwich. I think this is a little like your stories. There's something very serious in the middle, that, but you put all these kind of, how you say, you put this fun, these jokes around it. But yeah, yeah. yeah well, no, I think as a parent, mm -hmm. the challenge is to mediate reality mm -hmm. to your child mm -hmm. in a way that they will be both uh, sincere because mm -hmm. I really believe like you know I'm, I don't like this kind of position of parents hiding things from their children yeah. you know at the same time like you shouldn't lie but you should uh -huh. make it livable yeah. you know and I think that sometimes in a extreme position if a, I remember my father told me you know as a holocaust survivor he once said to me uh, life is like a dog that mm -hmm. you meet in the street Okay. And he said, the, mm -hmm. if you pet it, mm -hmm. it will lick you, mm -hmm. and if you be scared of it, mm -hmm. it will bite you. Not because uh, it, it hates you, but because it will become scared too. Right. So I think that the, this is something that I tried to pass with my son. That, so I think, that, let's say, so you could be attacked and it's mm -hmm. scary, but at the same time remember that you love. Mm -hmm. You know, even yeah. in this moment, and mm -hmm. and I think that uh, and I think that I guess unconsciously in this moment, like it was important for me for me to kind of do something when you lie on the ground, a strong feeling of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm wondering about your dreams. <laughs> I wonder what they're like. What is your last dream? You remember? It's not very consistent. Or do you have a recurring dream? Did yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. And in the dream, I go and I see her sitting on a bench, sure. and she's uh, seems to be drawing something. Uh -huh. And I said to her, "Can you show me what you do?" Uh -huh. And uh, she shows me, uh -huh. and and the drawing is really, really amazing. It's really beautiful. Uh -huh. And I said to her, "I didn't know you've learned how to draw." And yeah. she said, "I didn't learn anything. I, I don't." And so I said, "How can you draw it so beautifully?" So she said. I discovered every person, there are a few specific things that he can draw perfectly. Mm -hmm. And the, what I do in my spare time, I try to add what things I can draw perfectly. Okay. And then she says, I'm sure you can do that. Mm -hmm. And then I draw her. Uh -huh. And when I draw her, it's suddenly like this. So I have, it's usually my dreams are very much like story. I'm just wondering, yeah, what they're like. If you have a good memory, do you have a good memory for your dreams? No, no, it's like yesterday, for sure, I had the dream, and, and I remember parts of it, I remember like, who participated, but I don't always remember it in detail. Then that's a nice dream, the other one, because that's what is interesting and in a number of, I don't want to say that, a number of your stories are like, I don't want to say parables, but there is a sort of deeper truth 
and I think that's nice. It's not like a moralizing, but it's there's this deeper truth be, beyond the craziness and the jokes. And yeah. So I had this recurring dream. I go to visit a brother of mine that doesn't exist. It's not a real brother. Okay. That he's the god of the lake, and being the god of the lake, he's like all the amphibic creatures listen to him. All right. And what he can do, he can use his body and become water. And when I meet him, mm -hmm. he says that he feels that our parents like me better than they like him. Okay. And I say, why do you say that? And he says, because they never wanted me to become the god of the lake. They always wanted me to have a degree from university. And, and you're a professor, and I never graduated. And I say to him, I say to him but you're a god. You know, and he says, yeah, but you know, but I think parents they don't care so much for being the god. And he says, but you're one with nature. He says, yeah, but they don't care. You know, and th this dream, I always woke up because what would happen, it's always like in this dream, I would go to sleep. Mm -hmm. It's like the details are a little bit different. Sometimes you would change, shape shift, sometimes at night I sleep next to the lake. And I wake up and I take off all my clothes and I enter the lake. And as I start swimming, two hands in the form of water uh -huh. come from the lake and they try to drown me. Oh, right. And when they try to drown me, I shout. Uh -huh. And then I see my brother, who in his sleep, uh -huh. he was like water, and in his sleep he was trying to drown me. Yeah. And when he wakes up, he says, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, like, it wasn't intentional, it was just in a dream. Uh -huh. He hugs me. Uh -huh. And he's like made of water and he cries. Water is it's beautiful too, it's scary though. It's it's not it wasn't scary because I felt that he loved me and that mm -hmm. it was a mistake, but I think that there is something for me, some kind of tension between the conscious and the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, water is yeah. It's also this kind of thing like this kind of opposition between naturalness mm -hmm. and rationality. That this Kind of a, I think some kind of almost like as if there is a war between the two. I don't know if it's like in Israel, but it's becoming polarized, like where the sciences and mathematics are emphasized, humanities is getting less funding, and there's this sort of thing, oh, you must be one or the other. But, you know, I think, you know, creativity can cross over from both, right? You need both. Sure. But, yeah, it's a polarizing, I think, now. Yeah. No, but I think also there is this kind of thing, uh, so there's something uh, very primer mm -hmm. in my experience like let's say I think at the same time kind of growing up in my family mm -hmm. how much my parents suffered with children then I would never cry next to them yes because I wouldn't want to add to, to the sadness or pain that they had in life oh, yes. so and I would always try to make choices would make them happy mm -hmm. you know so there was something the, so there is always uh, some kind of gap mm -hmm. between uh, the unconscious and the conscious and, and I think that, you know, it can be very aggressive and very, very, you know, it's like the nice word to call it is passionate, but I'm a very horny guy. You know? <laughs> okay. And, uh, and at the same time, I'm morally cozy because I don't want to hurt other people, because I feel some kind of, because I don't want to go to jail, I don't know, because yes. all, all those kind of things. But so I really think that this tension between Passions that I don't, I try not to, I don't have a lot of dialogue with them and they're not represented, and some kind of rationality that they try to stay on top of things. I think that this is what the dream is about.
Okay. No, it's an it's an interesting conflict, and they do seem to come out in your stories. And it's interesting, as you say, uh, you have these passions, urges. It, it can be uh, sexual or murder, you know, hitmen and all these kind of crazy things. It's nice that they can exist there. It's yeah, nice. because it's safe. Yes. It's very much like a, a confession booth. Yes. Yeah. In that sense, that you know that uh, it's a place where. You can admit things, yes. and uh, there is no collateral damage, you know. So, so I really think that there is something about the stories that they, let's say I think that always if there's a dialogue, mm -hmm. a moral mm -hmm. essence or whatever, the moral side would always win. Mm -hmm. But this dialogue doesn't take place in life. So I think in writing, it's basically it's almost like a debate show, you know, mm -hmm. where both sides can exist and we see what's going on. And I actually, I, I feel in a sense that the core of my stories mm -hmm. is very, very moral. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always, one way or another, it really talks about, not in a moralistic way, but it really talks about difficult dilemmas and the tension between social pressure and doing the right thing. Well, it doesn't matter what, you know, it's about people who, who I don't know, lie or cheat and pay a price for it. Many of the stories yes. have, have a strong echo and I think for me it's basically kind of a way to resolve mm -hmm. all those uh, tensions inside me. For me, uh, teaching, especially the kind of stuff that I teach mm -hmm. in a workshop, it's all about the uh, writing workshop you are teaching the students. Mm -hmm. I often compare it to AA meetings, you know. I think that the workshops are like more like a support group because the act of writing is an unnatural act. It is difficult to justify in that, yes. you know. Why are you writing a story instead of cleaning yeah. the house? You know, there's no good answer to that. You know, why do you make up things that are not true and write them on paper? You know, it's a it's a strange thing. And I think when you are in a group, then it kind of creates the perfect acoustic for people to create and to share the create. So I don't like it very much when people kind of say, "Okay, this is a story. Here, I teach you how to make it better." I can't teach anybody how to make it better, but I can help you get a stronger notion of what he wants and what does it mean to be himself, you know? Mm -hmm. It's more about kind of finding up somebody where he's heading. Yeah. Then I think it's uh, not about authority, it's almost about some kind of friendship. And this is what makes it tricky, because when you write, you're, you're almost self-sufficient. When you make a film, then even if you're cool, I don't know, you don't like them, you can make them do what you want. It's not a good way to create, but it's possible. But in teaching, I think you, you have to create some kind of friendship. Mm -hmm. yeah. You wrote that in some of your stories too. I, or one I remember, there was a woman and she... Oh, I can't remember. But yeah, yeah, creative yeah. writing. Creative writing. Yeah, I, I, well, you know, some of my, you know, when I give my students exercises, mm -hmm. then the first time I thought I gave them students exercises, and they came next week and they say, you can't write this. Mm -hmm. So since then, whenever I have an exercise, I, and I give an exercise, first I write it myself, and then I give it to the class, and quite a few of my stories started with exercise that I prefer. But that's, yeah, that's great, because again, you're pushing your comfort zone, and you're doing new things like that. And then you see their way, it's interesting. So, so it was a story that I wrote as an exercise okay. for my students, because it was a story about somebody who creates a work of art, mm -hmm. and they try to show, let's say, to help, to help somebody create a work, a work of art that, that projects 
on his or her life. It's so the, the art will be some kind of an extension of life. You know? It has a parallel, though. It's very different. One of my favorite stories of yours, of your recent ones, is uh, Lyland. I like this again. The story becomes some crazy world. I, I think many of my stories are about the act of, story, of writing stories. Yeah. Because I think that it's always in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, there are writers who can sit down mm -hmm. and imagine that they're a coal miner in Newcastle and write a book about how they lose a child and, you know, how this guy, you know. Yeah. I think that there's always in the back of my mind this question, why am I doing this? Uh -huh. And I think that this thing, always, this question is always, you can catch a reflection of it in the story, like sometimes, you know, in films, when you stop and you can see the cameraman reflection in the mirror or something. So I kind I, of like those moments. <laughs> I think that most of my stories are about writing. You know, I can pick up random stories and tell you why the story is about writing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's a metaphor for that. What I think writing is self-creation. And I guess if you're all involved in that, then... It's also a story about storytelling because basically every time you write a story, you sit at the table and somebody character comes and you don't know anything about him but through conversation you know, learn more mm -hmm, yeah. and you know and become part of, of his or yes. her work so it's a story about writing and it shows you how writing can <clears throat> help you cope with loneliness basically in the end what he says the bird, then you see that making up story could be a way to protect your loved ones yes but if you Tell me about the suddenly knock on the door, and I can say yeah. to you, writing a story, this story is basically the fact that as a human being, you're forced to take compromises in real life, but you keep your freedom in art because they can put a gun to his head and he's there, but in the end, he, uh -huh. he, it's not that he drew a gun faster than them and shot them, but in the end, they have to give up because in the fiction world, they cannot force him uh -huh. to create something that he doesn't want. It only comes untamed and free. Mm -hmm. So, so I think many of my stories, if you look at them, they tell you something about the, the role of fiction. Oh yeah, it's very nice. So it's very, it's true. When I think of them, I see them as the separate, real people, even though they're weird. I don't know if you want to talk a bit what it was like to go back to Warsaw. I think that I grew up knowing very few things about my mother's childhood. Mm -hmm. It always seemed kind of a place from the past and a place, some kind of heritage that I felt accessible, you know. It's like kind of E.T. getting to go back to his home planet, you know. It's after thinking nobody's going to come and take him there, you know, it's really... And I feel a intimacy that I was able to develop. Strangely, like if I think about people that I think are Polish and German, uh -huh. which would be kind of strange because my parents traumatic past, you uh -huh. know? But at the same time, it's something that we have in common. And it doesn't matter if it's as a victim or a victimizer. Mm -hmm. Again, this idea that you don't take your identity for granted, mm -hmm. it's something yeah, that yeah. makes it... I think many times when I meet French people, for example, then, you know, they don't ask themselves what does it mean to be French. Say they're like six or seven generation, they're not necessarily, they never massacred, they family never massacred or mm -hmm. owned slave, mm -hmm. yeah. or wasn't massacred or employed as a slave, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah. they're like rain going on the rail, mm -hmm. and I feel that this thing rain got derailed, mm -hmm. and they, there is, and nothing is being taken for granted, you know. Yeah, well, okay, so here's the questions for, if you want, so what are some of your views on the future of literature and, you know, our future on the planet as humans? 
Well, I, truth is, I find it hard enough to deal with the present that yes. I still didn't have the time or the ability to start thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a good place to be. That's the, that's the childlike wonder, too, that you want to maintain as an artist. Yeah, and, and, and the truth is, clinging to the present mm-hmm. is uh, one of the best ways of surviving mm-hmm. the human experience. You know, okay. I think that, you know, it's like when my father died. Mm-hmm. He was uh, 84 years old, mm-hmm. but it still surprised me mm-hmm. because you can't think of your parents dying, mm-hmm. and at the same time, we hardly try to think about the fact that we're gonna die, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that let's say we, we're very much obsessed with human history, mm-hmm. but if you look at human history compared not to the history of the universe, mm-hmm. but even to the history of our planet, you know. Our planet mostly existed without life, mm-hmm. and then it existed for a fragment of a second with humanity. Mm-hmm. In, but from this fragment of a second, a very tiny part was civilized humanity. Mm-hmm. But yet, when I talk to you about history, you wouldn't think about a parent planet Earth going in a circle for billions of years. You would think about I don't know, it's far back as it's relevant for something that you, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I really think that, uh, that this idea of confining yourself mm-hmm. to a slice of time mm-hmm. and not speculating about the future, mm-hmm. it's really a, a healthy way of dealing with your existence, you know? You know, everybody talks about the fact that, you know, that at some stage we, that we're creating AI, mm-hmm. and that the, the point that we'll be able to create computers, that we'll be able to create computers, mm-hmm. then those computers will, won't understand how they work, and they'll be able to create even smarter computers. Yeah. The distance of mm-hmm. intelligence between humanity and those computers mm-hmm. uh, will be, uh, they'll see us like ants, yes. you know. So I think we are. We are, maybe, already. We don't know. <laughs> no, no. The computers I'm saying, people talk about the 30 years uh-huh. in which this stage, and basically it's when the CSS ends, they will choose to step on us or or to feed us. I don't know, but mm-hmm. everybody talks about the fact that they, we have to get out of hand, but who knows if we get there? You know, there are so many, yeah. so many variables. It's know. all material for art, anyway. It's all, yeah, well, I think, you know, life is more important than art, but, but at the same time, I think that there is something about it. It's important to be humble about yes. this, you know. I think, I think it's always important to do your best to change things, but at the same time to realize that your power to change them is limited. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Cassidy Edwards. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.